0: Hey everyone, not sure what you're up to. Hopefully you're outside enjoying a beautiful day or night out maybe riding, skiing, running, hiking, walking the dog, just enjoying being outside. Or maybe you're loading up the truck for an epic day to head out into the mountains, making a cup of coffee in the morning. It's going to be a big day. Or maybe you're finishing a long day and you're cooking dinner and you just want to listen to someone else's stories for a change. Uh, regardless, I'll keep this intro short so you can get to hearing those stories. Today, the guest is Ian Boswell. Ian, I'm sure all you know who Ian is. Ian is one of the brightest stars that uh, the U.S. has ever created as far as road cycling. Ian rode for Team Sky, which is the equivalent of the New York Yankees in cycling for several years. And then uh, rode for uh, Katusha, another huge world tour team. Some of the biggest teams in uh, the world of cycling, but in 2019, he suffered a really terrible head injury and decided to walk away from road cycling because of that injury at the end of the 2019 season and is now officially retired. In the world of cycling, very, very few athletes walk away from cycling on their own terms and are usually just not rehired and have to transition into some other career and call it their retirement, even though they maybe want to keep racing or uh, They're not sure what to transition into after racing. and Ian is one of the very, very few who's had a successful career on the road and walked away from it on his own terms. I think that's incredibly cool. Ian is an incredibly well-spoken and oh, just an awesome interview. Anyone to uh, talk to, Ian's been an incredible mentor for many riders. I remember the first time I met him, uh when i was racing for the canadian national team and walking or riding up next to him and just introducing myself and just how cool and humble and down to earth he was as one of the superstars when i got my first chance to race against some of the world tour riders uh ian now does all kinds of cool stuff he is now working for wahoo and i'd recommend you follow him or his podcast uh breakfast with boz is an absolutely fantastic one to listen to and uh without anything more i'll let you enjoy ian Okay, so here we are with Ian Boswell, and uh, Ian. So you're in Vermont right now, correct? I am. Yeah, my home up in uh, Peacham. Okay, and you live in a basically a barn there, from what I see on. Uh, we,
1: ha- we we do have a house, but the the house and barn are all connected. But um, yeah, it's an old old farmhouse. Actually, the house was built in in 1785, so it's, it's yeah, about as old as the country.
0: That's crazy old. So what's funny about that is I'm currently. In Austria, in the Alps, right on the the Swiss and German border, like the furthest west corner you could get. And I'm also in a barn here and like an old Austrian one. And what's so funny is like they're it's they're so big. These barns are so massive in the sense that like our apartment that we have. And so it's myself and one other teammate here. We're staying here. The apartment that we have is maybe enough room for like four to six guys. And we take up maybe a third to a half of one floor of this barn. And then there's still a floor above us and a floor below us. And then if you like open up the window in the bathroom to see into like the middle of where the barn is, there's like the tractor and all that kind of stuff, which is just so funny.
1: Yeah. We definitely have a lot of space, you know, that used to be an old dairy farm. So, you know, we're not, obviously we don't have, you know, several hundred head of cow. So, um, yeah, we have some extra space, but some neighbors store their farming equipment in here and slowly we're, um, yeah. Things come and go. And like I said, some neighbors store some stuff in there. So it's nice to be able to offer, offer some space for them and utilize the barn to a certain degree.
0: Yeah, for sure. And so, you know, the, I, I'm sure you won't remember this, but or actually, you know, the first time I ever heard your name, and this was like when I was still like a punk mountain biker that thought road cycling was lame, like they shaved their legs and stuff, but I was just starting to get into it. And the first time I ever heard the name Ian Boswell was, uh, I don't know how I came across it, but the video call in you and Joe Dombrowski did from uh, like Joe Dombrowski and Ian Boswell check in from team sky back to action or whatever. Do you remember doing that?
1: Oh yeah, I do remember doing that. That was goodness. That's been what eight years ago now or something.
0: So it would have been a while back. Like yeah. at that time to give some kind like, I didn't even know what like the UCI was. And I probably discovered what Redlands was like three years later. But yeah. And I was like, Oh, action. This seems like a cool team. What, what are they doing? And then, <laughs> yeah you're you guys checking in from team sky i was like oh that's pretty cool
1: yeah yeah it's a uh it's been a long journey but it's yeah it's it's been a fun ride
0: yeah and then the probably the next time that we actually met in person was uh one of the first times i rode with the canadian national team at the quebec and montreal gps and i just okay. remember seeing you and your team i guess you would have been on sky that year I just remember seeing you and your team sky kit and just like rolling up to you and just like saying, Hey, after the race, like just introducing myself and you were just so cool. You were so nice and kind about it. And just like, so down earth. And that just really stuck with me because there was you. And then it was also the first time I'd ever met and spoke to Greg Van Avermaet and he was, you know, just getting swarmed by all the press after the race. And you could tell he was just trying to be really patient and take his time with them. And then we got into the elevator with him, going up into the hotel room, and it was just myself, my teammate Alec Cowan, and him in there. And we were almost just like kind of putting our heads down, like "Oh my God, this is Greg Van Avermaet." Like we don't want to bother him or anything like that. And he was just like so open and like saying hi to us and asking us all about it. And we're just like, "Wow, you know, that's pretty cool. Yeah. These guys are like really kind to us." And <laughs> you know, they're yeah, well, man, I think patient.
1: that's yeah, one of the cool things about you know about cycling is you know we're all just there kind of doing our, doing our thing and doing it. Cause we love it. And especially, you know, at those races, like you said, up in Canada, or even, you know, you look at tour California and it was still happening, you know, for a lot of the European riders, like they're super happy to come over here and race. And it's, you know, a less, obviously the races are incredibly important, but the environment is just less stressful and it's fun. And you know, being accommodating to the local fans. And, you know, obviously, you know, it's cool that the Canadian national team can race in in those races because it's a huge level of exposure and opportunity to be able to race a world tour race under a national team banner.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it gives, like, I remember doing it because I was going to go to the world championships as an under 23. And this was an opportunity for us to race way above like to get a chance to punch way above our weight class to just get a chance to do those to make it the world seem that much easier. And it, it is such a cool opportunity when you do get those little moments, I guess, with the national team, which is awesome.
1: Yeah, well, hopefully they um, come back in, in 2020. I haven't seen anything or any statement from those Canadian races, but obviously a bunch of other events have been now changed and overlapping those events but you know it's those are two you know those quebec and montreal you know now being in northern vermont are kind of like the the closest races to go and watch from my house sure and so i mean i guess i don't
0: want to make this podcast at all about corona because you know the thing is like that's all you hear about right now but so how much has your life been affected by this because obviously i mean you're in a pretty ideal place like i am where you're kind of just have a lot of land and a lot of space to just kind of hang out on your own property, but you're also in a point now where you're, you've shifted into a different part of the cycling career.
1: Yeah. So I actually work for, for Wahoo now and they're based out in Atlanta. So I, I've been working remotely since January anyway. So it's not that different for me to be, you know, working from home. Um, You know, there were quite a few events this spring that I would have been attending. I think this weekend was maybe supposed to be sea otter or I would have been out in California now. So all the the gravel events that I was going to go to for, you know, for racing, riding, and also, you know, on behalf of Wahoo for, for expos and whatnot um, have been, you know, subsequently postponed, canceled. Uh, so I've been spending a lot more time at home. Like you said, I am extremely fortunate to, to have some, you know, land to roam and, you know, it's a pretty, I don't know it's, we're not anti-social, but we definitely, you know, this hasn't really been, to be honest, that much of a change for my wife and I. And I was saying last night at dinner, I think if, you go through the last month and are not sick of your home or your wife or your, you know, where you're at, you've probably decided that you're living in the place that you want to live. And yeah, if this continues on for another couple months. Um, yeah, we're, we're pretty fortunate to be where we are and to have the resources to, you know, get outside and, you know, garden and get ready for summertime.
0: That's a really fantastic way to look at it as far as, you know, if you can make it through this time, you've chosen the right place to live because, you know, you know, for me, so the, another way I look at this as far as, so here, here's another question. Do you feel like, has this been like a big downer on you and like the way it's affected your life or are you looking at it more like this is an opportunity for you to focus on other things and this is, is this really holding you back and you're really frustrated and can't wait for this to be over or are you seeing this as like an opportunity to try out other things or learn other things?
1: I would definitely say it's been an opportunity and I hate to, you know, be so optimistic in such like a challenging time for so many. Um, but personally, you know, I've been, I've been really fortunate to be here and, you know, of course I miss, you know, not traveling to some of these events because I was was definitely looking forward to it. You know, my brother had the opportunity to come up and spend a couple of weeks with us. And, you know, we've been, we built like a little log cabin, lean to type thing. We've been doing all sorts of home projects and I pretty quickly, kind of shifted my mindset to where, you know, my riding and racing and whatnot was, you know, kind of put to the side and just focusing on other things and have this opportunity of time at home is is fantastic. You know, for the last, well, since we've lived in Vermont for three years now, I haven't spent much time here during, you know, the winter, spring, and, you know, early summer, just because I've been away racing. So it's actually nice to be part of kind of what we have going here and, you know, to actually be planting seeds and, not just coming back in late summer eating all the vegetables. So it's uh it's nice to be part of the process.
0: Oh, that's awesome, man. You know, for me, the, the way I look at it is um, you know, there's kind of two types of cyclists. There's the guys that love to train and there's the guys that love to race and for the guys that love to train. And I would put myself in this category, like someone that just loves to ride their bike. This is like the greatest opportunity ever. Cause you just get to go ride every day and not much of your life changes. But for the guys that love to race, it's going to be much harder just not having any set goals off in the distance. But I'm also really well aware of the fact that, you know, we're very privileged in the fact that we chose this very simple life that's very already isolated and health conscious.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. And I, you know, when I was racing on the road, I definitely preferred training to race. And like if someone would have paid me to just train and not race, I would have done that. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know, I've, I've still been riding a bit and actually in the first couple of weeks of, you know, social distancing and kind of the stay at home order here in Vermont, um, I definitely toned down my riding because my brother was out and, you know, the weather wasn't great. So I would, you know, go down to my basement and, and ride my kicker for, you know, an hour every, you know, every other day. But now that the weather's warming up, I have been, been going outside a bit and yeah, you know, I really miss that. I Man, sometimes I feel like I almost like self-sabotage myself and get out of shape. So then I can get back in shape because I really enjoy that process of like, you know, you do your first big ride and you have like a major bonk and you're like, oh, this feels awesome. <laughs> like I'm getting better. <laughs> yeah,
0: That's awesome. Now, you know, so one of the, the podcasts that I heard that you recorded with, and I re-listened to this one maybe a week or so ago because I thought it was so cool in the way it almost kind of foreshadowed a little bit of what we're going through right now was a podcast you, Joe Dombrowski, uh, Richard, and recorded with Richard Moore and, uh, who, oh, and Larry Warbass and Matteo yeah. and Will all recorded the Americans in Nice podcast. And I thought it was a fantastic podcast for anyone that hasn't listened to it. I'd highly recommend it. And uh, two of the things that you guys talked about is I can't remember if it was you or Joe that recommended that every cyclist needs to take a, a like a six month sabbatical. And it, I think it's so funny that we're basically being forced into that right now.
1: Yeah, well, it's true. Yeah, I, mean, I remember that conversation well, because, you know, obviously I decided to walk away from racing last year for multiple reasons, you know, my health and kind of my, my lifestyle. Um, yeah, and you know, part of that decision just came from the fact that I was, you know, forced to stop racing last year in March. So I had this, you know, essentially eight months of, <clears throat> you know, being a professional road rider where I wasn't racing. And in that time you started to value a lot, you know, very different things than I was valuing as a, as a rider. You know, it's some people are obviously in a different situation. You know, if I feel like a lot of people in Europe, I guess not in Austria, but, you know, France and Italy, Spain, you know, they're not allowed to go outside and ride their bikes. You know, so if those folks were still able to ride outside and realize like the pleasure of just riding without having to, you know, train too specifically, that might, you know, definitely would change their perspective of what they value and, to realize that you can still ride your bike and have fun without having to you know, race at, at the highest level.
0: Mm-hmm. And one thing that uh, <laughs> uh, I think it was Joe that was talking about the idea of like work-life balance, and this is what I wanted to ask you about and get your take on, is the idea of work-life balance and if that can actually exist in pro cycling. And I mean like the very top of the sport, like World Tour pro cycling, is there really such thing as uh, work-life balance? Or does it have to be something – because the way I look at it is that cycling has to be something you love so much that you're will, that it's okay if that's all of your life and you're in it. And the other thing, the point that I don't think gets across when guys talk about work-life balances, in pro sport in general, in order to make a living in pro sport, you have to be in the top 1% or better just to, to make a living in that versus in most other careers, whether it's you know a doctor, a lawyer – or a carpenter or a contractor, you can make a really lucrative and great career being in the top 15% of that field. Yeah. And so there's a lot more room to have more of that work life balance there and actually turn off for part of, like, you know, have your work day and, like, okay, now I'm done working for the day versus as a cyclist or a professional athlete in general, even in October or in your off season or New Year's, night year, even your subconscious is kind of, you know, calculating that extra beer you're going to have right now and how much effort that's going to take to work off. And there's no real shut off from that. And so I was wondering, what do you think about the whole work-life balance thing?
1: Um, You know, I always felt like throughout my career, I had a pretty good work-life balance. Although that being said, I think that balance is kind of, it's it's a spectrum really, because what you're balancing is what you're able to in that in that space, you know, obviously my life now is very different than it was, you know, for the last eight years. Um, You know, in that podcast, Joe mentioned that, you know, a true work-life balance, if you were to compare what a balanced life looks like from a professional athlete to, you know, like you said, a doctor or a lawyer, it, or maybe that's a bad example. It's like to a, I don't know, a teacher or something. It's not that balanced because you're thinking about it. You know, you, as you said, you take your job home with you as an athlete. It doesn't end, when you jump off your bike or when you stop your run or swim or whatnot, you know, it's with you 24 hours of the day and everything you do is, I don't say calculated, but it's thought about, you know, there are times in the season or, you know, in the day when you, you do switch off, but it does have to be somewhat in the back of your mind constantly. If you are trying to reach that highest level and, you know, it's very easy to then start, you know, calculating things and realizing, okay, if I sleep a bit more, if I, you know, train a bit harder then I can, you know, get a bit better Then it all. all of a sudden start to realize how easy it is to actually improve, which then, you know, subsequently, you know, leads to less balance. Um, but there are definitely ways and little things, you know, to switch off mentally that just help. And I think, you know, some athletes are able to do that. Other athletes are, you know, do live in this, you know, constant level of focus and dedication. But at, at the same time, you know, that's, you know, what it takes to, to reach the top and, you know, kind of I manage it throughout my career through almost compartmentalizing like certain points in the season, you know, so when I wasn't, um, you know, really getting ready for a super specific event or, you know, in the winter, you know, making sure to really maximize that time and enjoy it because knowing that, you know, when you come to to spring or your first race of the year, your target race, that you have to ramp things up and get, you know, get focused and then you're living an unbalanced life. But I think you, as an athlete, you personally enjoy that, you know, maybe those around you are, you know, less having less fun, but, you know, I think a lot of athletes enjoy that process of, of really focusing down and getting ready for a specific event.
0: So would you consciously over the winter when you're a little bit, a little ways out from one of your goals, would you consciously think, okay, you know what, I'm just going to back off the throttle, you know, 5% right now. And then that gives me, you know, it saves a little energy in the batteries for later when I'm a little closer to one of the goals? Or are you someone that just had your foot to the floor year round?
1: Oh, no, I was definitely not a 365 day a year athlete. Um, You know, I always love riding my bike, and I always love exercising. Um, But kind of all the things around that, you know, definitely went to, you know, the wayside during the off season or even little, you know, gaps in the middle of the year. And, you know, when I was living over in France, you know, my wife would come over and visit me you know every couple months and you know I'd make sure to schedule in a, a rest block and we'd take a little road trip to, to Italy or something and you know I um, you know definitely learned how to make sure I enjoyed those times but you know that meant you know prior to you know a vacation or an off season um, making sure I kind of got the most out of myself knowing that I could go on a vacation and actually enjoy it and be be present because I think the worst thing you can do is you know work hard and then, or maybe, sorry, not work hard enough, and then go on a vacation or into an off season. And then you're kind of in this limbo of like, Oh, well, I didn't really do everything. So you feel guilty in that time when you're supposed to be, you know, switching off and, you know, the sport has also changed. I see a lot of, you know, younger athletes and, you know, the way that the professional side of sport and cycling specifically has changed. It does take a lot more dedication year round. When you look at, you know, older riders or some of the riders I raced with at the, the early years of my pro career, you know, they had, there was less, I won't say less commitment, but there was more balance of life. And now it's, you know, you see a lot of these road riders that are, you know, up at altitude, you know, starting in January and, you know, pretty much away from home the entire season.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. And, you know, here another idea, have you ever thought about what are the, there's something that I, w- I wonder if you've ever thought about this. And the reason I bring it up is because you just mentioned about, you know, working super hard that way when you're, you do take a vac- vacation and you do shut it off for a second, you feel like you've earned it and there's no regrets there. And so one thing I think about or that I noticed when I first came to Europe for the, the full year last year is when you're racing in North America, you never really associate cycling with a means to wealth at all because you, you just don't see it. For money versus a lot of the, you know, if you're a kid growing up in Belgium or Italy or France, you actually see Tom Boonen ripping around in a Lamborghini. Like that that's yeah. something you can actually see. And so guys are actually see this sport and are willing to take like some crazy risks on a descent and just fight really, really hard because they see it as a way for them to not get like a manual labor job. And I always thought that was like so old school and that never made sense. But then I, when I actually experienced it last year, that made a difference. But on, so that's, an interesting form of motivation for a lot of the European kids, I think, that they see. But then what I see for the North Americans is the fact that how much you have to sacrifice to basically pick up and move your life to Europe. And so the way I would think about it is, you know, if I'm sitting around the dinner table with my teammates and we're at a race wherever for that weekend, and uh, for them, you know, when you're deciding if you're gonna have that extra bit of, or if you're gonna have dessert or you're gonna have uh, some wine at dinner, Something like that for them, it's a little bit easier to maybe say yes to that at times because you know, at the end of this race, regardless of how this weekend goes on Monday, when you go back, they're going to be back with their family, their friends, they're going to see all of that. Versus for me, it was I'm going to go back to a a lonely apartment in Belgium where I can't talk to anybody for the next five days because I don't speak the language and I'm not going to be home for the next nine months or so. And so, that's constantly weighing in the back of your head like, man, do I really want to keep making these sacrifices? To stay at this level, or am I willing to make a little bit more sacrifice and push a little bit harder to move up a step in the cycling world? And I was wondering, did that ever? Did you ever think about things like that? Like what maybe the different motivations?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I do think you have a point there. Like I you mean, know, I raced on teams with you know riders from you know Russia and you know you know like I said places in Europe where cycling is very much a means to you know a a better lifestyle. Um, you know, that was never really the case for me. I never, you know, I was never in a race thinking, okay, like if I win this or if I do well here, then I'll, you know, make more money. I always did it very much, you know, because I loved it and I loved like the process and love getting better. Of course, having a paycheck and a salary is an awesome benefit to that, but it was never something that I was, you know, willing to change what I was doing for more money or, you know, I wanted to be better because I wanted to be better. Um, you know, one of the things that kind of looking back on my time racing on the road was that you know I definitely made nice home and I was in like the same building for eight years and it was you know that was essentially my home so I wasn't of course I wasn't back with my family but you know people made trips to come over come over and visit and, you know I definitely spent my fair share of, of money on plane tickets for a family to come over because that was important to me and I knew that you know if I wanted to be successful in Europe and make that home that I needed to really make that like a comfortable place that I wanted to go back to so it wasn't like, <clears throat> for example, you know, you say going back to a lonely apartment, you know, I was alone for the majority of my career. You know, I lived by myself or Will Bart actually was living with me, um, but we kind of had o- somewhat overlapping or injuries. The first year we lived together, he was gone half the year because his crash and broken femur in the second year, I was gone most of the year with my crash. Um, You know, I just always made sure to like make my European base like an actual home and a place I wanted to spend time. So it didn't make it challenging to, you know, to go back to my apartment, you know, after a race. It was a place that I loved going to, a place I, you know, even when I was in the U.S., you know, visiting my family. It was like, oh, cool. I can't wait to get back to Nice because that was my that was my home base. And that's where I was living. That's where all my stuff was. So I think that made a big difference in my career, just having a place that to call home in Europe.
0: For sure. And so, I mean, the easiest way I, you know, what was always explained to me from, you know, a, a big mentor in my career has been Swain Tuft is he's been someone I've been in really close contact with for a long time now. And he's always kind of been like the biggest mentor to me. And you know, what he always said and a lot of the Australians said, cause they have to make the same sacrifice is, you know, you have to make Europe a home, not just a place you spend during the season. And, you know, hearing that last year for me, because I was just, you know, staying at a team apartment, in not in Belgium actually I was in Germany right near the Luxembourg border but just like a really quiet little town and it was just so different from you know I come from Squamish BC in Canada where the mountains are and I love being in the mountains and it just it was a very different environment and it didn't suit me as well compared to now I'm in a tiny little barn up tucked away in the Austrian alps it's paradise for me here is you know so it's it's definitely much easier to Make Europe home when it's a place that, like you said at the beginning, if uh, you feel like you can stay here for a month or so, that's uh, you've picked the right place to live. So, I yeah,
1: definitely. Yeah, and I think you know, making connections with people and having activities outside of cycling to make it feel more like home. You know, in where I was in Nice, I was fortunate there were quite a few other English speaking riders and you know, the American group of Larry, Joe, uh, I guess Matteo now, and Will. Um, you know, Nice is also a big enough city that. I'm not a city person, but there was always something to do and, you know, go out to dinner. There's, you know, awesome beaches there. So, you know, finding that, like I said, kind of going back to what we talked about earlier, like a balance of having activities to do off the bike, because it's, you know, it can be a lonely existence when, you know, you ride by yourself and you get back to an apartment and you're hanging out by yourself. And I think that's probably one of the biggest struggles for a lot of athletes, you know, who are living alone in Europe at the moment is that, you know, riding and socializing on the bike was pretty much one of your only forms of socialization. And then when that's gone because of, you know, the current situation, it can be extremely challenging. You realize like, Oh, wow, I'm actually alone here.
0: Mm-hmm. No, I completely understand that. And I have so much more perspective for that comparing like last year to this year. And so here's another question. Why Nice instead of Gerona for the, uh, the North American central hubs?
1: Yeah. So when I joined, um, Team Sky in 20, I guess it was 2013. Uh, at the time when I'd first signed my contract, Bobby Julik was a coach there. And so he was going to coach both Dombrowski and myself. And Team Sky had this idea of kind of building a, it wasn't a service course, but like kind of like a team base in Nice. So it wasn't, when Joe and I first moved there, I guess I went over in December, 2012, the house, the team house that they, you know, kind of have occupied wasn't really set up yet, but they had started to put in the infrastructure and hire um, actually our team chef at the time was also living down there and his wife was kind of helping to get this all set up and running and making sure the athletes were better supported and looked after so Joe and I moved to Nice just because the riding was phenomenal you know we were going to be coached by by Bobby um, he wound up leaving the team before we started working with him as a coach um, but yeah since then I mean that you know kind of Nice Monaco area is is a hub for a ton of cyclists, but especially Team Ineos, and you know we were incredibly well supported there. There's a team house there where you could, you know, go and you know work on your bike or pick up nutrition products, and we'd have like team dinners and barbecues, training rides, you know. So kind of, you know, Dave Brailsford always had this vision of you know studying you know English soccer, you know U.S. sports where there's teams are actually training together, and it was so unique to cycling that all these athletes were training by themselves in their various locations for you know, months, and then you'd come together at to a race and see each other. And that was the first time you'd seen each other since, you know, training camp in December. So just trying to make a hub out of it um, was something that Team Sky was really kind of dedicated to, to doing. And, you know, Nice Monica was kind of the ideal spot for that. And I actually already spoke French from living in Belgium as a uh, an exchange student in high school. So it was convenient for me to move to Nice. And I think in a lot of ways, at the time when Joe and I moved to Nice, we were... I don't want to say pioneers by any means because there was a large crop of Americans there like in the early 2000s with Lance and Hamilton. Um, yeah. Bobby Julik, they all went to Girona afterwards, but it was kind of nice that, you know, Joe and I were able to go to Nice and kind of set up base without, you know, kind of do our own thing. And, you know, while I love cycling, love hanging out with cyclists, sometimes I feel like Girona could maybe be a little bit overwhelming because it's a relatively small town with a high percentage of, of cyclists.
0: For sure. Yeah, no, I, I hear that from quite a few guys that have said, I've never even been to Girona. That's uh, kind of the one big cycling hub I haven't been to, but that's certainly one thing I hear there. And so another question I had for you is, I can't remember, I'm sure this was, I heard this on a podcast that you probably recorded a long time ago. And uh, you know, it's such a long time ago, I'm, I'm maybe going to script the details here, but essentially you were going on a training camp and uh with frumi for the first time and i think you said something like you're just stashing like extra food in your bike bag because you're worried they're gonna like starve you and stuff
1: and this does do you remember what i'm talking about i do yeah i think it was 2016 um frumi, pretty much every year has gone down to south africa he actually has a house down there and has pretty close ties he went to boarding school down there so he Pretty much every season has selected or the team has selected one rider to go with Froome down to South Africa to this place called Crystal Springs. It's like north, northwest of Johannesburg. It's like a, it's actually a game reserve up at 2,000 meters. Um, and, you know, we go in February and there's awesome riding around there and you're at altitude and you kind of escape the, the nasty, you know, spring weather of, of Northern Europe. And yeah, so I, I was selected and obviously I wasn't, wasn't an opportunity that I was going to turn down. So I, you know, volunteered to go, but knowing that it was early season and, you know, Froomey trains like a maniac and, you know, he's very conscious of his, of his diet and his, you know, body weight. I was like, well, I better like pack some snacks because this is going to be, you know, we're going to be riding a lot and probably be underfed. So I packed my bike bag with all sorts of, you know, little, energy bars and, you know, snacks. I think my mom even had sent me for Christmas some like beef jerky and whatnot. Um, and my, my bike box was ridiculously heavy. I remember the soignor who came down with us picking up my bag, being like, what the heck do you have in here? <laughs> um, but it turns out we actually ate really well. The team had had hired a local chef that came and cooked for us. And we ate, you know, well-rounded meals. We didn't, you know, I wound up hardly touching the, the food I had packed in my bag. Because you know, I really observed and learned there that you know, kind of managing your body weight is not a struggle. It's just a process of, you know, being balanced. And you know, that was something that I definitely picked up from from Frumi is that you don't need to make these crazy drastic cuts. It's just about consistency. You know, we ate well every meal. You know, we went out and did a barbecue by a river and you know, grilled up steaks. So I think they call it a bry. I think that's what they call it down there. Um, but yeah, it's uh, I learned a lot there, and you know, thankfully I had that. Opportunity pretty early on in my career to realize that you know you don't need to make these crazy you know sacrifices and that you know we drank wine most nights and there's like a special South African um, liquor that for me enjoyed so we'd have you know that once in a while, but it was just balanced you know we were riding you know five six hours a day so it's like you know you can eat a pretty substantial amount of of food, so it just you know kind of taught me that you know having that balance of you know fueling your your workouts is really important.
0: Huh. That, that sounds like a pretty good life. then.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, everything yeah. was taken care of. <laughs> yeah, it was wake yeah, up wine, yeah.
0: riding your bike yeah. five, six hours a day. So yeah. I'm curious then, are there any, what, what's the most ridiculous thing that you ever tried to get faster or maybe something that you saw somebody else do? So like, just to give you some examples, like for context here, like I think probably the most um, well-known one in cycling like just like outside viewers would see if anyone who's read like Tyler Hamilton's book would have remembered the part about how he would talk about like just drinking bubbly water to make himself feel full or uh I know one that stuck with me a lot that I just thought like wow that is crazy is I read Thomas Decker's book and at one part in it, he's just talking about how he did like almost like 300 kilometers of motor pacing with his dad the week before the national uh, championships and as like a junior and i just wow. read that and i was like that is insane it was like he's like oh yeah a week before the national championships as a junior I, we did like 275 kilometers of motor pacing and i just heard that and being like wow i'm really slacking right now like this is crazy <laughs> <laughs> what these guys are yeah. doing and i went did you ever hear or see any stories like that like, i mean you've been on you know the new york yankees of cycling you've been to the very top of it and you've spent quite a few years there is there are there any stories like that that come to mind?
1: Um, well, the last, I mean, kind of going back to that training camp in South Africa. I remember the last day we were going back to Johannesburg, um, which I think was like four hundred k away to you know to fly out. And so we decided we packed up the night before and Froom's like, hey, so like let's wake up early. We'll have a cup of coffee. You know, we'll skip breakfast and we'll we'll leave early so we can get a ride in on our way back to the airport. And we'll stop, you know, after an hour and grab breakfast somewhere. I was like, yeah, cool. And so we we left and you know we started riding. We hit you know descended off the mountain to the big the bigger road into johannesburg and frum was like hey let's just like rotate for a bit like just do five minute turns so we can get this done faster we we're going to try to do 200k or something um we wound up never stopping for breakfast and it just turned into a race we were just like <laughs> flogging each other over every little hill and like we had this one year, you know pulling our you know gear behind us he was in a car with a trailer and uh you know it just turned into a race it was like you know one last hit out before flying home but it wasn't anything too crazy. I guess the stupidest thing I ever did, um, this must have been my first or second year on Sky before I'd you know, done that camp with Froomey. I was up at Altitude outside of Nice at Isla 2000 with Larry. And I was like, all right, I'm going like, to really buckle down and focus here. So I, for the first and pretty much only time in my career, like, brought up a food scale and um, you know, got like focused. Like, I'm just going like, to calculate this stuff and measure it. So I did a pretty ridiculous training diet. Um, I'd like have oatmeal for breakfast. Get back from a ride. Have some like a recovery mix. You know, like a I think we were with SIS at the time. So like some of the Rego mixed with yogurt. And then for dinner, I'd have rice and tuna. And I think I was eating like two thousand calories a day. Like I was like set a goal. Like, right, this is what I'll eat. And like pretty much ate the same thing every day for must have been ten days. Um, I lost a ton of weight because we were riding a lot. But then it became this whole like fascination personally, like of like how much the human body can push itself, like how far I could ride with you know continually underfueling. And it was fascinating, just like almost as an experiment to see what I was able to do. And I was like, wow, this is like the most efficient, you know, human body's the most efficient machine in the world. Like I could consume, you know, literally like $10 of food a day and ride for, you know, 70 or 80 miles. Um, I wouldn't recommend doing that, but as an experiment, it was fascinating. I did lose a bunch of weight and I actually was riding well afterwards, but it didn't last very long just because the the weight was lost very quick and in a very kind of unsustainable way. Um, But yeah, it was, you know, kind of looking back on that, it was like, wow, that was, it was an interesting, like I said, an interesting, you know, kind of little experiment with myself to see what the human body is capable of
0: jeez that's yeah i mean i guess you can get by on ten dollars of food if you just eat like ramen every day
1: that's (laughs) yeah i mean it was literally like yeah oatmeal for breakfast a recovery drink for lunch and then rice and a can of tuna for dinner you know i'd spice it up i'd put like some curry powder and in the the rice or something like that but it was pretty basic
0: you know that's funny because like uh whenever i travel like you know we live out of suitcases for however long of the year And whenever we travel, like something I'd always take with me is my Leatherman. Yeah, I always have that with me, like you could make so many repairs in the hotel room and whatnot with that. And after last year, after being in so many Campanile hotels, and you're getting served like overcooked pasta and undercooked chicken at like 11 o'clock at night, and then going to go do the hardest one day race that no one's ever heard of the next day in Belgium or France or somewhere like that. The one thing I started packing is in like that I added to my emergency supplies to my suitcase was like pre-cooked Uncle Ben's uh, packages of rice and cans of tuna. Yeah. If it's 11 o'clock at night, I'm not waiting for that.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that's the somewhat fascinating thing to me is that, you know, there's obviously nutrition is incredibly important, but you know, when I look at, you know, a lot of, you know, amateur or masters riders here in North America, they have, oftentimes a much more dialed system than a lot of people trying to make it as a pro in Europe. And people don't fully realize like some, the inconsistency of, you know, support from whether it's teams or race promoters at these races, you know, you dial in everything at home, and then you go to a race. Like you said, it's 11 o'clock at night. You've had no food since the race and you get a meal that doesn't look appetizing at all. And eating very much becomes a job rather than a pleasure.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, geez. And so throughout your cycling career, like how focused you have to be, it's ho- It's obviously it's difficult to have other things, but were there any other hobbies or things that you had away from cycling? Like to just kind of keep yourself a little bit more balanced in, but things that didn't take away from cycling?
1: Um, I always like dived into quite a few different things. I never picked, you know, obviously now being at our home here, I have plenty of projects to do. Um, you know, a couple of years back, my wife and I started a, a gravel fondo here in Vermont. I, you know, when I was in Nice, I went to the beach a lot during summertime. I actually bought a spear gun and snork and mask and went, you know, spear fishing a fair bit. Did um, you catch anything? I shot a couple of small fish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, did you, you eat know, just like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's, uh, yeah. I mean, it's actually, it was surprisingly easy to, you know, cost me maybe like 80 euros to buy all the equipment and it was hours of entertainment. Um, <laughs> I've always loved, always loved cooking and Yeah, I mean, there's never anything that I, you know, I had a guitar and I, you know, picked at that a little bit. But, you know, because, you know, because you're always traveling and stuff, it was hard to pick up something that I could bring with me. Um, You can't bring the spear
0: gun on the plane.
1: No, you cannot. I uh, actually left it. I sold my, the car. I had a niece. I sold it to Mateo and I left all the spear fishing stuff in the trunk because that's where I, I, just always left it in the trunk. So I always had it, always had it with me if I was going to go down to the beach.
0: I feel like that's something you'd see in like Narcos when they like pop the trunk and there's a machine gun in the back. You, pop the <laughs> and then you gotta, like, Sir, what are you doing with this?
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, I always, you know, tried to stay occupied. And a couple years back, my brother and I started like a small coaching business as well. So we coached a few athletes, you know, just stuff like that to keep, to keep me entertained, you know, whether it was involved with cycling or not, just to, you know, keep my mind occupied. And, you know, there is a lot of downtime with, with when you're a professional athlete. And that's one thing I'm seeing now is, you know, I do sometimes miss that just free time where it's like, cool, I'm just gonna like, hang out and, you know, putts around the house. Now I have, you know, all sorts of projects that I'm in and, you know, involved with. So it, you know, takes me take takes a little bit of time away from my from my writing.
0: Huh. And then so I guess like a last kind of like big question I wanna ask you is for so long in like a, a very high percentage of your life, you're not very old, your big long term goal was, you know, being uh you know having the yellow jersey at the tour de france and say like you know you have this big long-term goal and then you have shorter term goals for every year for you know what you're going to do that like you are you're so goal oriented for that and now switching over to wahoo and you know maybe you have a little bit more balance in your life maybe you don't but do you do you have those long-term goals now like have you been able to set those yet and come up with that new structure yet or how has that changed for you
1: yeah i'm definitely still very much in a transition of kind of going from a professional athlete to a to an employee of a company um you know wahoo's been incredibly you know understanding that it's not a transition that happens overnight but i have started to like restructure goals and you know some of those are still you know based on uncycling and you know performance you know i'd love to to do well at some of these gravel events later in the year you know dirty kanza and belgian waffle ride Um, But a lot of the goals, the more specific goals have kind of turned to kind of personal life goals. You know, my wife and I have just decided that we're going to get a dog and we've got chickens and, you know, with our our property here, we'd love to, you know, to organize more events, whether it's some cycling camps and whatnot. So we always, you know, even last year, kind of prior to my crash, we'd sat down and made a, you know, kind of a one, three and five year goal because that throughout my career, that was something that I did for myself when I was young and then I kind of forgot about it for a while and then in 2014 before the 2015 season I I spoke with a friend who reminded me the importance of setting goals and you know both short-term and long-term goals and you know once you put them on paper oftentimes those things you know kind of stick in the back of your mind and you're more inclined to to achieve them and you know chase them so um yeah I'm still kind of in that that transition of, of figuring out what's next but a lot of the goals that I that I have now are you know, kind of more, more personal goals. We'd love to, you know, be able to have a a small hobby farm here.
0: Cool. That's awesome. What kind of dog are you thinking about getting? Uh,
1: English black lab.
0: That's awesome, (laughs) man. That's so cool. Yeah. Always wants to go do something. Always just stoked to see you. Exactly. Yeah. Have you thought of a name yet?
1: Uh, we are working on that now. Yeah. We're still Communicating with a few a few breeders, my wife was interested in a rescue dog, which I wasn't opposed to, but I thought, you know, for our first dog, um, I want to get a puppy that we can. Uh, if it's if it's a pain in our butt, then it's somewhat our fault, and <laughs> our uh, misguidance of it.
0: Sure, sure, okay. And then, so you know, I'm conscious of the time, but just to, like some some more short ended questions, just uh, things that maybe people haven't heard about you before. Is there a brand that, you know, what, what would your favorite brand be and something that just, I've, something that aligns with you and represents you well and or just one that you love supporting? Like, so for me, for example, something I try to get across in, like I try to get across my outlets is I'm really passionate about the environment. And I always say the best way to never need to change a flat tire out on the bike is to just pick up some litter. Like to just, you know, be, cause we, yeah. we create so much litter and garbage through pro cycling. And it absolutely cracks me when guys take gels out of their pocket, eat it and then throw it on the ground. Like you could literally just stick it back in your pocket because it's now even smaller and lighter than it was before. But, uh, so like if I had to pick a brand that aligns with me, like I love like Patagonia or Leatherman are like super cool brands that align with me. Is there one that stands out to you? Like something you really love?
1: Um, you know, it's hard to say. And I think as I've gotten older, I've like really valued buying quality things. You know, I think when you're younger, you know, even when I first moved to Nice, I was like, oh, cool. Like I'm living in Europe now. I should get some like European clothes and you go to, you know, Zara or H&M and you buy, you know, cheap clothes, but cheap clothes are just that. They're cheap. They, they wear out, they tear. Um, you know, I actually, maybe I would have to say like, Carhartt I have a pair of Carhartt pants that I actually bought at a thrift shop maybe that's my favorite brand is thrift shopping pretty much my entire wardrobe and most of the stuff in our house was either bought at a garage sale or or thrift shopping Um, but I have these pair of Carhartt you know double double padded knee pants and they're like my favorite pair of pants like they when I bought them they were already worn in they had some like cuts in them and I don't even wash them I just like when I come in from working outside I just hang them on a little hook and you know change into something, some indoor clothes, cause they're messy, you know, just something that's like durable and, you know, it's, While well, it's, some of these companies maybe aren't as, you know, I don't know their environmental stance, but I think buying something that lasts, you know, lasts an amount of time and it's durable, you know, does decrease, you know, waste. And I think, you know, also my wife is kind of the one who turned me on to, to thrift shopping just like giving something a second chance in a second home. It's amazing what people get rid of and how much life is left in, you know, so many of these items that some people deem not usable anymore.
0: For sure. And in the way I've always looked at it is like the second coolest thing you can buy is a Patagonia shirt. The coolest thing, because they give so much of that money away to like protecting the planet, but the coolest thing you can do is get a Patagonia shirt from a thrift shop. Cause then it's, you know, you're actually buying into what the brand, is all about is like reusing their stuff and the fact that they'll keep fixing your stuff for you. But you know, you said Carhartt there. And so the question I have to you there is like, I have a pair of Carhartts, but the thing is they're so heavy and they're so durable that like, okay, they're great. If I'm going to be like out working with the chainsaw or chopping wood or working on my truck and I have to like worry about like getting oil on them or something like that. They're great for that, but they're so heavy to like wear all the time. And I mean, I guess now you're working on a farm. It's not so bad, but I don't think those are like the best thing to wear when you go to the beach with your spear gun.
1: No, they're not. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I always, even, you know, when I was in Nice, you know, I had friends who some like friends worked at North Face. So they sent me, you know, a pair of swim trunks and I still have those and they're, you know, eight years old. Actually, my brother came out here uh, a couple weeks back and he was wearing a, a, a Merrill Bissell Pro Cycling, like long sleeve, you know, kind of wasn't undershirt, but like a, you know, a sports wicking shirt. And I actually just, he forgot about here and I sent it back to him in, out in Oregon. And I was like, wow, like it kind of just like resonates with that. If you buy something that's nice, like it's going to last, you know, he's been like trashing this shirt and it's, the shirt's like 10 years old and it's still in use and he's still wearing it today. I'm like, that's, you know, it, kind of a testament to like, if you buy something once that's, you know, made well, then it will last the test of time. Yeah, that's, <laughs> <laughs> but as far as car hearts, yeah, they're not, um, you know, I would never probably wear my hearts over a niece just because they are too heavy and too hot and they're not very functional. Sure. But, um, yeah, it really just depends on, depends on where you're at and what you're doing.
0: Okay. And then how about, do you have a favorite quote that you've ever repeated throughout your life?
1: Um, I have, well, actually, and one of the quotes that I, that's has stuck with me came from, from Bobby Julek when I first went to, to team sky and I'm sure someone else has coined it before him, but it's, uh, If you're early you're on time if you're on time you're late if you're late it's unacceptable and you know i've always been pretty prompt with with time um you know my watch is set you know five minutes fast constantly it drives my wife crazy but it's one thing that i try to always be aware of is being on time to things and being prompt um sometimes to my own demise because it sometimes get a little bit anxiety when i open my inbox and have a bunch of emails that i feel like I need to respond to. Not all of them need to be responded to, but I uh, just try to be prompt with things.
0: Okay, great. And then who comes to mind when you think of the word successful?
1: Um, you know, there's a lot of people and there's obviously a lot of, you know, f- athletes that I've worked with or, you know, been teammates with over the course of my career. But I would honestly have to say probably my younger brother, Austin. Um, he, he, you know, he was a bike racer when he was. I guess he's similar age to you, maybe a year or two older. But he had the opportunity to, you know, to become a professional cyclist, and he decided to not race bikes professionally. You know, he found a passion and love for for fishing in the outdoors, and he, you know, at the age of 25, started his own you know outdoor guide service. And he has mastered fishing. Like I called him the other day, and he's at home tying flies. And I went on a river trip with him last autumn down Hell's Canyon. And you know, we didn't come from a family that you know for me getting into cycling was much more convenient because my parents were both endurance athletes it was easy for me to get into cycling in the sense that i had support and kind of knowledge around me to to help help me but my brother's kind of like self-pioneered his his career in in fishing and yeah it's just is a reminder to myself that you can learn something without any background in it. it just takes time and patience and, you know, persistence. And that's, you know, really inspiring to me to see that what he's done and what he's been able to, to make for himself and how he's been able to, you know, turn a hobby into a, a career.
0: Okay. That's amazing. That's a he, man. He said, so is that the same brother that's come over to build the lean to the log cabin? Yeah.
1: Well, and the same with the lean to, you know, like, I'm like, Hey, let's build this thing. And, you know, my approach would be like, "All right, let's just start building it and kind of figure it out." And he's like, "No, like we need. There's a process to this. We need to read about it. We need to figure out, you know, let's make a drawing." And I'm sometimes not patient enough to, you know, do the the groundwork. Um, you know, he spent, you know, two and a half weeks building that thing, and yeah, you know, his goal, goal when he when he built it or when we built it was that like this is going to ideally you know last our lifetime, which is an awesome an awesome, you know, kind of mindset.
0: And that's super cool. And I mean, a lot of the people that listen to this podcast would be interested in that. So do you want to plug any of his stuff? Like if guys want to follow him?
1: Um, He does have an Instagram. It's called EO River Outfitters, Eastern Oregon River Outfitters. Um, But he doesn't really do social media. I mean, they have an Instagram account, but you know, he, he's not that into, he just wants to do what he wants to do. You know, he's he, a proper mountain has, man. Yeah. He doesn't have a Facebook and um yeah, he just yeah. And I have a lot of respect for him just doing what he wants to do. And, you know, he doesn't, because he has so much free time, cause he's not on social media. He can put that towards, you know, reading about, about fishing and the outdoors.
0: Okay. And then, so last question, we've talked about like buying like good quality stuff. What are like three to five pieces of gear or just items that you think everybody should own or just like the best purchases you've ever made, like specifically whatever it could be. So like, uh, you know, ones that are one that I know that we both use is like bar mitts for like riding in the winter is I, yeah. everyone that sees them, I just tell them it's like, I know they look so stupid, but they're the greatest thing ever. Or like, uh, darn yeah. tough socks, you know, that's Vermont. Like those would be yeah. things that I would name. I'm wondering, like, do you have any sort of bits of gear that you're into that
1: way? Um, a few things that I have that i really love you know the first would be like a really good kitchen knife and that's made a huge difference you know just cooking so like a one really good kitchen knife another thing would be a, Do you foam have a specific roller. one in mind um we have like a shun uh I, just something that yeah fits your hand well and you know can be sharpened and um yeah we got it as a wedding gift but it's something that you know i use every day and you know i take care of it and that's something that you know i've also learned through my dad and brother just like taking care of your nice stuff, you know, for example, with the chainsaw, like every time I come in from using it, you know, I clean it, you know, sharpen it as needed, but just taking care of your stuff helps it last so much longer. So yeah, kitchen knife, I'd say a foam roller is definitely something that is really important to me. Um, I spend not a ton of time on it, but just like every morning, I do like a quick five minute roll out of my back just because I get, I get tight. Um, other things that are incredibly important to me. I don't know, I'm looking around my house trying to think. Just like
0: um, best purchases being like, yep, that was worth every dime to buy.
1: Uh I bought a pair of Bluntstone boots. Those are worthwhile. <laughs> They're not cheap, but they, you know, it's kind of like a one purchase shoe that can almost do anything. You know, you can wear it out in the field, you know, working, but you also can wear it to a dinner and it looks it looks nice. Um, goodness. I'm trying to think of other purchases that I've made that have been.
0: Or even something no. like, was there anything that you traveled with? Like I said, like we live out of suitcases for how long in the year? Like anything sort of like weird things you travel with? Like, so for example, like uh, the Euros would never let me open the window whenever we'd be at a hotel room and stuff like that. Like they, they'd hate that. Whereas I'd love to just smell the fresh air all the time. So I started traveling this year now with uh, scented candles that smell like cedar and whatnot, being like, okay, no. well, at least I'll bring uh, some of the outside indoors and then our room doesn't smell like wet cycling shoes
1: yeah i i um bought when i was in europe like a little electronic Bialetti coffee machine like you know just a a mocha pot yeah um so that was something i always traveled with because i i'm a morning person so oftentimes wake up early and you know i don't want to have or didn't want to have to like wake up and go down to a breakfast table and get a cup of coffee and come back to my room and hang out before you know it was breakfast time so i could sit in my room and just drink drink a cup of coffee while, you know, kind of reading the news or whatnot before the day started. So that was important. And um, yeah, I had something else on my mind, but I can't think of it. Oh, I guess it may be a good, like a good traveling speaker. I love music. So um, yeah, just having like a, a tiny speaker to be able to play, play music in your hotel room. And, you know, there's nothing better than like even just waking up in the morning and listening to, you know, a podcast or some music and drinking a cup of coffee
0: awesome great stuff man that's a lot of fun ideas there yeah sweet awesome well thanks so much for your time ian
1: yeah thank you oh i guess one more thing that i would suggest like you said you had a leatherman i always carried and pretty much always do like carry a just a small pocket knife with me um actually i had a a friend send me a a little swiss army knife with my name on it and i always kept that in my toiletry bag because like you said there are so many applications for a little Swiss army knife with some scissors and a bottle opener and, you know, can opener and a knife. It's a toothpick tweezers, you know, pretty much everything you would need on the road.
0: Sure. Well, you know, it's funny you say that. And like, that's awesome that someone gifted that to you because that's kind of become my thing as far as like people that have helped me, in life, like not just my cycling career, but just like really big, or people that have just helped me so much in life that I wanted to show some sort of appreciation for. You know, We obviously don't make enough money to go start getting custom engraved Rolexes, or at least I'm certainly not no. there yet. But <laughs> I, I've been like gifting custom engraved Leathermans to people and yeah. I was like, you know what, That's, you know, this is as classy as I can afford to get right now. And yeah. hopefully at least they'll have it for a while.
1: Yeah, actually the, probably the, one of the best purchases that I ever made was, I'm actually wearing it now, it was like a G-Shock watch. You know, yeah. it's like $80, but it has a little, you know, light on it. Um, and I don't think I've taken it off other than when I was racing on the road, I would take it off for races. But especially when you're traveling around to different hotels and you don't want to wake up your roommate, you know, the light is enough to like navigate to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not so bright like a phone, you know, where it you know, might disrupt your sleep. So um, yeah, a little watch that has a little, a little background light on it is, is very convenient when you're traveling from hotel to hotel.
0: So to add to that is I like I'm such a gear nerd in that, and so I totally looked into the G-Shocks for a while, and I ended up getting a Pro Trek instead. And I don't know if you know what that is, but it's made by Casio. They're made in the same factory as the G-Shocks, but the Pro Trek line is more oriented towards like outdoors versus okay. G-Shock is more military. And that's yeah. what I have on my wrist right now. And it was like I got it for my 22nd birthday from my mom, and it's been like one of the best things I've ever bought. Like I say, my Leatherman. That watch, and then like a double-edged safety razor, like learning how to shave with an old-school safety razor, would be like the three best things I've ever yeah. got that are all like under a hundred bucks, or like right around a hundred bucks. But yeah, yeah I mean, things.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's sometimes like you said, this watch is something I just noticed because I looked down. And I was like, oh wow, like I have, you know, I've not taken this thing off in a year now. <laughs> you know, and the battery's still going. It's you know four or five years old now, and it cost me eighty dollars.
0: Yeah, and you don't have to worry about breaking it when you you're on the bike or something like that versus no okay you know like cav and george Hincappy look looks sweet and like Hublots and richard mills and stuff but it's like man that that watch costs a lot of money you can't break that
1: <laughs> no no that's uh and you got to keep moving to keep it working
0: yeah there you go <laughs> this thing just runs off the sun
1: yeah <laughs>
0: awesome well thanks so much ian i really appreciate your time
1: yeah thanks jack awesome
0: all right i'll talk to all you right, soon. speak soon man Such a well-spoken and uh, just a fantastic interview. Ian's such a great guy to listen to. And like I said at the beginning of the show, if you enjoyed hearing from Ian here, I would highly recommend you check out his podcast, Breakfast with Boz. It's a great bunch of interviews. Ian does a fantastic job on his podcast. And I just think he's such a cool guy in the sense that he was able to walk away from the sport on his own terms and is now getting to right his own path. He's still obviously super young. He's, uh, you know, He's only a little bit older than me. I guess, but uh, it's been really fun for me to follow Ian and have him as almost a bit of a mentor for myself. So getting to interview him was a great pleasure for me. I hope you enjoyed the show. Again, uh, whatever you're up to doing, don't worry about you know writing reviews or anything like that. Just enjoy whatever you're up to. And hopefully if uh, this was just like a long training day out on the bike for you, or maybe it's pouring rain and hopefully these stories just helped you get through the day, or maybe these are just a cool thing to listen to when you're cooking dinner. However, you're listening to this show. I hope you're enjoying it. And uh, if you want, you know, share with some buddies that might be interested in listening to these or keep it to yourself. Uh, it's all good with me. If you're interested in some more of these podcasts, I usually put them up on my personal website uh, weeks before they show up here. So you can go to jackburkcycling.com to find that. You can also follow me, on Instagram, jackflash66, not changing that nickname now. Uh, I guess other than that, I hope you enjoyed this episode and uh, keep listening to some more in the future.